When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Crimeland. My name's Julie J, and I have a quick favour to ask. Well, too, really. Firstly, if you could download this episode, I would be eternally grateful as this is what counts towards charts. And also, if you have enjoyed this episode... I would really appreciate if you could take the time to rate or review us on iTunes. A quick disclaimer as well that absolutely no offence is meant to any of the people discussed in this episode. Sources for this story today include Murderpedia, The Telegraph, Independent Newspaper, AllThat'sInteresting.com and The Guardian. This week I'm talking to... Mike Rice. About, I don't know if you've heard of this one, about the child killer... Mary Bell. Have you heard of Mary Bell? No, I I haven't. I don't even know if I want to, Julie. Well, you're in it now, I'm afraid. So just I thought, Mm. what could be nicer of a Friday afternoon, nice sunny day out there, uh, than sitting around talking about El Mary Bell. So Mary Bell... Talk about the slaughter of a child. Well, well, Mary Bell herself was a child. So she she was was a killer child. Oh, so she was a child herself that killed other children. Tick, tick. You've got it in one. Okay, like, so will be taking her Capri Sun or something, and she's like, "You'll regret that bite." She, yeah. Mary Bell was what we call a very scary child. Okay, so we're we're <laughs> we're gonna de- we're gonna delve right in. So this story takes place in the summer of 1968 in Scotswood, which was an economically depressed community outside Newcastle in the north of England. Uh, Mary's mother, Betty, was a prostitute, uh, now known, of course, as a sex worker, who was often absent from the family home. So she would travel a lot to Glasgow for work to meet clients, etc. Mary was her first child. She was born when Betty was only 16 years old. It's not known who Mary's biological father was, but for most of her life, she believed it to be Billy Bell, 
who was a habitual criminal, later arrested for armed robbery, and who had married Betty sometime after Mary was born. So it was presumed that he was her dad. Right, it, Bill, Billy was... Billy, um, Billy, Billy Bell. Right, Billy Bell. I mean, even even there, your, your, your kind of role model being Billy Bell, it doesn't bode well. Oh, God, yeah. that actually rhymed there. Billy Bell it's, doesn't bode well. Thank you, Tricky that's, Beats, because we were just discussing off air. <laughs> we were just discussing off air your former career as a rapper. So, yeah, you're spot on. Absolutely. It's all rhyming. Independent accounts from family members suggest strongly that Betty had attempted to kill Mary when she was a small child nice. and made, make her death look, look accidental more than once during the first few years of her life. So <laughs> Betty, whatever about once trying to kill your child, you know what I mean? But like this right. was kind of a running theme. Did she, did she think that Mary was kind of soaking up too much of Billy Bell's time? Well, she, do you know what? It wasn't even that. It was just like Mary did have, I mean, if you like, if you can imagine the worst childhood, it was just horrendous childhood. So her mother, who, by the way, you know, obviously the fact that she was working at 16, like something had gone wrong working as a sex worker at 16, like something had gone wrong in her life as well. You know, like she was obviously coming from a very damaged place, but, you know, bit of a trigger warning. So just to say that, you know, Mary herself, was he didn't lick it off a bush, Julie. No, like, I mean, it was, I mean, Betty obviously came from quite a damaged background. And then as is the, you know, as is the cycle with these things, Mary then again learned suffered behavior. like a similar fate. Learned, learned behaviour and all You're that. You're trying to kill me. I'm going to try, I'm going to kill a few kids myself. Well, it's it's interesting because obviously, you know, the attempts to kill uh, the child, which like it was Betty's own family who did say this, that Betty had done this to Mary. Like, even though Mary was only a baby, when that first incident would have happened, like it's funny how these things well, might have affected what, what's her. What's interesting to me is that her mother attempted to kill her and failed, right? You know, because I mean, surely, like if I wanted now, and this is not bragging, if I wanted to kill a child, they'd be dead. Yeah, well, it's, 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 I'm not sure what the methods were, but certainly this did happen more than once. And she was in Mary, yeah. So Mary herself, um, and a, just a bit of a trigger warning, she, uh, would have said um, after the fact that she had been the subject to repeated abuse and that her mother would have actually forced her into sex work with men um, from a young age. So from the age of five. So, you know, really just a massively fucked up situation. Uh, right. On the 31st of July, 1968, the body of three-year-old Brian Howe was found on wasteland in, this, in the same Scotswood area. He had been strangled. Nearby, a pair of broken scissors lay in the grass. Brian's belly had been, and this is super creepy, had been signed with M, the letter M, and the person had used a razor blade. So they had left the letter M on his stomach. Right. This cut, cut would not be apparent until days later. Police flooded the community, obviously, following the discovery of this body and started interviewing all kids in the area between the ages of three and 15. So among the children who stood out as suspicious from the get-go to investigators uh, were 11-year-old Mary Bell and 13-year-old Norma Bell, who strangely was no relation. So obviously Bell was just like the equivalent of, you know, like O'Sullivan Murphy. and Kerry. Right, yeah. Yeah, 
Like there was just a lot of bells. A lot of bells knocking about. Mary was evasive and acted strange. Norma was excited by the murder, remembers one police officer. She was continually smiling as if it was all a joke, he said. As the investigation narrowed on Mary, she suddenly, in first commas, remembered seeing an eight-year-old boy with Brian on the day he died. The boy hit Brian for no reason, she claimed. She had also been seen she had also seen the same boy playing with broken scissors. But that boy had been at the airport on the afternoon Brian had died. So this obviously did not happen. It was some kind of fantasy. But swing and a miss from Mary. Yeah, but you see, the thing is. She actually, by revealing that she knew about the scissors, which was confidential evidence, Mary had implicated herself. So even though they knew the story wasn't true, uh, she had described them exactly, these scissors, like silver coloured and some, this is what she said herself, like silver coloured and something wrong with the scissors, like one leg was either broken or bent. It was becoming clear that either Mary, Norma or both had seen Brian die and one of them was probably the killer. So obviously Brian, um, this poor small child, was buried. Detective Dobson was there at the time of the burials. This is the guy who would have led the investigation. He said, Mary Bell, Mary Bell was standing in front of the house house when, sorry, the hose house when the coffin was brought out. I was, of course, watching her. And it was that it was when I saw her there that I knew I did not dare risk another day. She stood there laughing laughing and rubbing her hands. I thought, my God, I've got to bring her in. She'll do another one. Ah, for effect's sake. That's so, nasty out Mary now. But I mean, really disturbing. Like you think, you know, you think of how young an 11 year old girl is. Like this is so disturbing that Very she's young. literally hysterically laughing as this funeral of this poor child is taking place. Right, so, bef- Getting a real kick out of it. A sick yeah. kick, may I add, Julie J. Yeah, very. No, it really, it was really disturbing. Like, obviously, it was very disturbing for this poor detective to watch as well. So before Brian's funeral, Dobson questioned Norma again. She now claimed that Mary told her she killed Brian and brought her to see his body at the blocks. That night, Norma was taken to the police station to give an official statement. Norma's story shocked the police, who wasted no time in picking up Mary Bell at quarter past midnight that night. One detective said she appeared to see herself in some sort of cliche scenario of cops and robbers film. Nothing surprised her and she admitted nothing, Dobson told Gitta Sereni, who uh, wrote a book and actually was quite a controversial book in the late 90s because she wrote it um, in conjunction with Mary Bell. And she was Mary she, Bell's ghostwriter, like Dunphy for Roy Keane that time. Yeah, so she had mm. gone back and interviewed the people in hand. But Mary had refused to budge that night. And she said, even though like this is an 11-year-old child has been woken from her bed after midnight, she still kept her wits about her. So she said, it's always me you come for. Norma's a liar. She always tries to get me in trouble. At 3.30 a.m., Mary was permitted to leave. Dobson was telling himself, so he had been telling himself, look, there's no way a child could be capable of this heinous act. But after seeing Mary's behaviour at Brian's funeral and gathering testimony from Norma, he brought Mary back into the station the next day. She was very apprehensive, said Dobson. She gave me the impression that she knew the time of reckoning had come. Mary now admitted to being present when Brian died and her confession, inverted commas, took a bizarre turn. 
Mary's statement had some truths, but for the most part, it was clearly an attempt to blame Norma. Dobson formally charged Mary Bell with the murder of Brian Howe. That's all right with me, she replied. He then arrested Norma Bell, who actually got, she was, her response was very angry. And she said, I never, I'll pay you back for this. She said to Mary. She said to the detective, oh, I that never sounds ominous. I'll pay you back for this. Oh. So she's threatening a detective and oh, she's, she's 11 years old. Like that she, there's going to be retribution for Dobson. Yeah, well, I, I think she was just, she, yeah, she was just basically threatening him. And the girls were incarcerated at the Newcastle West End police station. Their upcoming trial would obviously attract huge media attention, the likes of which had never been seen in an English court. So investigators now looked at the now. So having decided that they obviously killed this little boy, they now looked at the mysterious death of another child, Martin Brown, as a potential murder and felt that Mary had been responsible for his death. So, in fact, Mary Bell's behaviour after Martin's death, he was also a little boy in the area, was so outrageous that some wondered why she hadn't been arrested sooner. But to be fair to the police at the time, it went beyond the remits of anyone's imagination that a child could be capable of such a thing. Like, you wouldn't, you know, your mind wouldn't leap to that. She was old as yeah, so also, as one local boy said, everyone knew that Mary was, quote, a show-off. And her screams, I am a murderer, which, because she had been running around screaming, I am a murderer, after this little boy died in mysterious circumstances. I mean, people just laughed at her because she it's was a, a funny you know, joke. A child. If you didn't know what was going on, you'd be like, God, she's a gas little ticket. Well, I think you just, it's, Mary it's not even that you would say funny joke, but you would definitely not believe in an ever I mean you you would not believe an eleven year old who was running around shouting, singing that she was a murderer. But Martin, poor Martin was seen so this little boy who had died, he was seen at approximately quarter past three on the twenty fifth of May nineteen sixty eight, which was the day before Mary's eleventh birthday, and was discovered only 15 minutes later lying on the floor of a boarded up house. So one of the boys noticed that there was these boys kind of hanging around this area and this abandoned house. They were kind of hanging around outside. And one of the boys noticed Mary Bell and a friend coming towards the house and stopped directly below the window. Shall we go up, said Mary. So this the friend with her had been Norma. And they squeezed, Norma and Mary squeezed through the boards to get inside. Mary had brought Norma to show her that she had actually killed Martin. And the really disturbing thing of this, of uh, about this case, about this particular death, was their effective taunting of Martin's family. So the girls went to find Martin's aunt straight after this to tell her that there had been an accident and they thought it was Martin and that there was quote blood all over. I'll show you where it is," said Mary to the auntie, who was obviously in bits at the news that something had happened to her nephew. Strangely, the police could not find any signs of violence. A bottle of aspirin was nearby, and they thought, okay, maybe he ate them all by accident. There was no visible strangulation or any other marks on the child, and therefore the authorities believed that his death was accidental. The official report on Martin Brown declared the cause of death open. Meanwhile, Mary and Norma were giving Martin's aunts the creeps with their questions. So they kept, so the aunt said, 
they kept asking me, do you miss Martin? Do you cry for him? And does June miss him? And they were always grinning. In the end, I could stand it no more and told them to get out and not come back. Martin's mother, June Brown, was also disturbed by the girls. After hearing a knock one day, June opened the front door to find Mary standing there. Mary smiled and asked to see Martin. I said, no pet, Martin is dead. She turned around and said, oh, I know he's dead. I just wanted to see him in his coffin. And she was still grinning. I was just speechless that such a young child would want to see a dead baby. So I slammed the door on her straight away. So again, really disturbing behaviour from an 11 year old child. Yeah, she was quite, she really, she really, um, like to rub it in their faces, didn't well, it they? Was, she was a brat. It was sadistic. Yeah, it was definitely was. sadistic. And again, it probably points to the fact that, like, this is just an 11-year-old child. You know, her life up to that point had been fairly horrendous, her own life, that, like, she enjoyed inflicting pain on other people. Um, the right. first night in their small jail says in Newcastle, in the Newcastle police station, the girls were restless. They kept shouting to each other through the doors, said one of the policewomen who watched the children. The police station was not obviously not accustomed to housing children um, and tried to make preservations as best they could. So the kids, just like Norma and Mary, would not shut up. So they said, look, finally, we just told them to shut up. And at one point I heard Mary shout out angrily about her mother. Mary, who had been, and I think this kind of points to the fact, obviously we can't ignore that, you know, two toddlers are dead. But also this does kind of point to the fact that this girl herself was just a child. She had been a really bad bedwetter, was terrified of going to sleep for fear that she might mess her bed, which obviously, as we know, like bedwetting is a sign of, you know, that uh, the child is suffering from serious anxiety and all the rest. And like up to that point in her life, she had just had this you know, really quite horrifying life up to that stage. So it's not surprising that she had this issue. But she told a police officer that she was scared that she was going to mess her bed. And she said, I usually do. At home, Mary's mother severely humiliated her whenever she wet the bed and would rub her daughter's face in the urine, said Mary years later. She would then hang the mattress outside for the entire neighbourhood to see. So just to embarrass her. During the course of her incarceration, the women guards got to know Mary a little bit better, describing her as confident, clever and cheeky. Some of Mary's casual comments would shock the police women, but others saw her as a scared little girl with no understanding of what had actually happened. And her hostility, Mary's hostility had almost like this naive quality. So once she grabbed this little cat by the neck and a guard told her not to hurt the cat, Mary allegedly replied, oh, she doesn't feel that. And anyway, I like hurting little things that can't fight back. In another instant, a police right, that was woman quite said. Prescient. Yeah. And in like another. Word now? Prescient. I, I think now officially the listeners are just like mm. losing their mm. shit. It's get them up out, Mike. With that <laughs> word. They're so happy. But in another instant, back to the serious crime land. In another instant, a policewoman said that Mary had said she'd like to be a nurse because, quote, then I can stick needles into people. I like hurting people. So, again, this points to the fact that this child is extremely damaged. I wouldn't Mary Bell. In this crisis, Julie. No. No. Mary Bell and Norma Bell were brought to trial for the murder of Martin Brown and Brian Howe at the Newcastle 
at the Newcastle Court on December 5th, 1968. Both of them testified. So even though they were kids, they were both brought to the stand and testified. Mary was composed on the stand. She asked why she she was asked why she wanted to see Martin Brown in his coffin. She said, we were daring each other and one of us did not want to be a chicken or something. She had told the Brown family that Norma had killed Martin because, quote, I had I had an argument with Norma that day and I couldn't think of nothing else to say. Mary got the idea that Norma killed by strangulation from TV. You see that on the television, on the Apache and all that. So again, a lot of the stories that she would kind of come up with, they were very much like cops and robbers or, you know, these kind of cowboy and Indian films. They were very much like, I suppose, you know, sometimes, especially with kids, that they confuse they, I suppose it's a mission TV of real life. memory. Yeah, they could. Yeah. Exactly. So furthermore, Mary insisted Norma wanted to, quote, get put away and asked Mary to run away with her. When asked why Mary, Norma wanted to run away, Mary weirdly answered because she could kill the little ones. That's why. <laughs> and run away from the police. Right. So Mary is selling Norma down the river big style. Absolutely. So despite now, Norma also... Snitches get snitches, Mary. Yeah. So Norma also, she did the exact same thing. She was pinning it all on Mary. Despite their accusations against each other, the girls had this really strange connection. So during the trial, commentators and obviously, you know, the media presence there was huge, but they would have written a written about the fact that their heads turned constantly towards one another. Their eyes locked, their faces suddenly bare of expression and curiously alike. They always seemed to have this silent and exclusive communion to reaffirm and strengthen their bond. So they seemed really weirdly connected. They were despite all of this, right? Even though they were blaming each other. Well, do you Both, think that they said that they beforehand said, hey, listen, I'm going to blame you. You blame me. No one will be any the wiser. We'll be out of here. Before dinner. And actually, maybe that's true. That could be true. I never thought of that, but that could be a definite possibility. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very true. Bro- both you. denied. I never thought of that. Uh, thank you, Mike. So both denied any responsibility. <laughs> I genuinely didn't, but it's a great point. Both denied any responsibility for Martin Brown, but both acknowledged that they had been together with Brian the day he died. According to Mary, Norma strangled Brian. When asked if she was afraid that Norma might kill her, Mary boldly replied, she would not dare because I would turn around and punch her one. Mary's grim version of events, however, were closer to the truth. So Norma, people kind of accepted, the court accepted that this was much more likely what, according to the evidence as well, and the fact that Mary kind of given a few things away during her statements to police, like Norma's version seemed a little bit more like credible. So she said May, which was Mary's nickname, May told Brian to lie down, lie down and then, quote, started to hurt him. And she claimed that um, basically Mary had pinched Brian's nose, obviously, to asphyxi- asphyxiate him. Um, and mm-hmm. then she said that Mary um, had said when she was really hurting him, she said, Norma, 
take over, my hands are getting thick. The conviction are, was obvious. Mary would either get murder or manslaughter, manslaughter. Although there was more sympathy for Norma, it was unclear how severe her punishment would be. The defence needed to show that Mary was disturbed and couldn't help herself nor understand the enormity of her actions. So after the kid's testimony, the defence called psychiatrists who examined Mary and one doctor testified, which is hardly surprising, he said, uh, quote, I think that this girl might be regarded as suffering from a psychopathic personality, which seems to be kind of, you know, understatement of the century. But yeah. uh, that was the clinical diagnosis. Yeah. Poor, poor, poor old Mary, really, like, you know, because, you know, sure, she had she had her old mind and soul uh, put to the fire as a child. You well, know, she didn't just, stand no. a chance, really. She Ash. really didn't. Yeah. Um, so she had, yeah, she just had, she really had a terrible life. Obviously goes at saying that is not taken from the fact that like what she did to these two kids was, was just nasty. I'd I mean, I would say it's wrong. It was wrong. Well, I mean, yes, defo. Like it, but I mean, it's unfathomable that like a child, an 11 year old could do this to two toddlers. Like I it really you're, is. You've been trying to out vocab me there. You've used some nice ones now. Unfathomable. I haven't. You have. I have not. And, 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 and I, I feel a little bit attacked because we've established at the start. That's my thing. It, it, well, do you know what? It is your thing because more than one person has complimented, uh, well, they've complimented you via my DMs. And I would like uh, to thank them. I would like to thank them indubitably. God, this is getting really competitive. I'm starting to sweat. Okay, from now on, I'm only using monosyllabic words for the rest of this. Okay. Oh, how. Well, monosyllabic itself is an oppressive word. You've been very sly there, Julie. Uh, Okay, this is just I'm I'm back look back to the story. Okay, we both we've established that we both like words. Okay. The jury, which consisted of five women and seven men, took under four hours to return a verdict. this is quite surprising. Norma was found not guilty of everything. So she all charges against her were like dismissed. It was she was clear. Free to go. Mary Bell was found guilty of manslaughter because of diminished responsibility in both Martin's and Brian's death. The judge pronounced a sentence of detention for life while Mary cried. Norma Bell was later given three years probation for breaking and entering the Woodlands Crescent Nursery, which was one of the places she wasn't supposed to go into because they previously burglarised that place. So she was placed on probation after the fact and under psychiatric supervision. But other than that, there was no punishment as such. Because Britain was not used to incarcerating little girls who murdered, the question of where Mary should be placed should be placed sent everyone scrambling prison of course was out of the question for an 11 year old like this is 1968 so obviously they didn't have much in place for somebody like mary who uh, was very young mental and, and, hospitals and, and could, weren't equipped now, to take her would they have would they have kind of stuff in place to take care of kind of kitty criminals now well i mean they'd have kitty like juvenile institutions the th- the thing is that she was too dangerous for institutions that housed troubled children as well. But what they did have at the time, they had a juvenile detention centre, but it was only for boys. 
So Mary ended up in an all boys facility, which obviously would be, you know, problematic when a couple of years down the line, puberty hit. So she was the only little girl in an all boys facility. And also she's kind of uh, already displayed a proclivity for killing boys. Yes, well, this is it. Yeah. And you see, you would, you know, you'd question their thought process on that. But I mean, they literally just didn't know where to place her. But the, the one thing about her being placed in this unit. She was placed in, the unit was called Red Bank Special Unit from February 1969 until November 1973. Red Bank was, it was known as kind of a reform school, but really it was like a juvenile detention centre, very high security, obviously. But by most accounts, it was seen as kind of, I suppose, a reasonably um, supportive institution. It was headed by this guy called James Dixon, who was a former Navy man. He was actually quite an interesting character of himself. And he had, he was known for his strong moral influence. So he kind of didn't give up on these kids and was kind of looking at like redirecting them and giving them some kind of, I suppose, moral compass. And Mr. Dixon provided structure and discipline for Mary. And she actually said herself after the fact that she came to really love and respect him. Meanwhile, Betty Bell, who, of course, was her mother, and her mother had made quite a show of herself during the trial. Like, she was always, you know, shouting out, interrupting the court procedures. Well, she wasn't she wasn't necessarily pissed, but it was always kind of trying to make it about her. So she was, you know, held in contempt of court quite often. She just couldn't behave herself during the trial at all. She was trying Um, to make a laugh of it, trying to make a laugh of the whole thing. I think it was I think it wasn't even making a laugh (laughs) of it. I think it was more the attention factor that she wanted it to be about her. So meanwhile, Betty, her mother, was profiting hugely from her daughter's notoriety, selling her story to the tabloids. And what seems particularly cruel, she would encourage her daughter to write letters and poems so that they could be easily sold to the press. Betty wanted her daughter to see how much she suffered as the mother of a famous juvenile murderer. So again, she just made it all about her. So she was very quick to remind Mary that it was just so hard for Betty being her mother after she had done this. And she said, Mary actually said after the fact um, in the book that she she wrote um, there in the uh, with Miss Sereni in the late 90s, she said, Jesus, this was a quote from Betty. Jesus was only nailed to the cross. I'm being hammered, complained Betty at one point. So now, she, bear in was, mind, she was quick. She was quick to pull a, a Christ comparison. Well, she yeah, she really wanted to, you know, she was kind of looking at herself. She wanted to, I suppose, convey herself as a bit of a martyr. I mean, this was, a, you know, a woman who would have essentially sold her child like into into mm. into into sexual slavery as such. Right. Now, again, she's we don't know, like Betty, obviously anyone who is, you know, ends up, it's 1968, she ends up pregnant and she's working as a sex worker at 16. Something's gone wrong there for her. But, right, you know, yeah, it's, yeah. it's 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 strange right. that it was, she would kind of make it all about her. In 1970, Mary reported to a counsellor that she had actually been sexually assaulted by a housemaster. Later in 1972, she began, quote, the, what was called, referred to as provoking the boys and snuck into the boys' dormitory at night. She also began self-harming and at 16, she was moved to an adult prison. So Mary had to adjust from, it was a strange transition. So she'd gone from an all boys atmosphere at Red Bank to a full women's facility at Style Prison. 
She was a rebellious prisoner and was frequently punished, but soon adapted. And then she also decided to go, this is using her own words here, butch. And when her mother heard this, she said, Jesus Christ, what next? You're a murderer and now you're a lesbian. God, now that's not a fair, that's not a fair comparison to throw, that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Absolutely. So a consultant child psychiatrist (laughs) who did weekly group therapy sessions at the prison observed that Mary went a long way towards persuading her world that she was masculine. She strutted and making up as if she'd stubble on her face and uh, rolled up stockings in the shape of male genitals and pointed this out to me in class. I think she wore these all of the time. She would later ask a doctor for a sex change, but was denied. And then later on again in the book, she said it was the idea of not being me. So rather than it being motivated by actually wanting a sex change, she just wanted to be a different person and leave the old Mary behind. Well, that's quite bad. Yeah, I mean, it is. After being transferred to a less secure facility in 1977, Mary escaped. She was picked up along with a fellow escapee by two young men. And in her brief time out, Mary lost her virginity. The guy she slept with later sold his stories to the tabloids, story to the tabloids and claimed that her, she had told him that her motivation to escape from jail was that she wanted to get pregnant. Mary Bell was released in 1980 and stayed in Suffolk. Her first job was unbelievably in a local children's nursery. Oh, for fuck's sake. But the problem, how do you think yeah. that job interview went? Like, look, Mary, we can see here now you have murdered two toddlers before. Do you think you'll be wanting to do that again? Because that would not go down well. Yes. You know, no, no, I don't think I'm done with that now. Oh, I like I like your cockney. If she was a Geordie, I know I can't do that one though. Geordie is hard. Uh, But look, obviously the probation officers then said, "Look, you can't work in a nursery. Like that's just not going to, you know, work at all." After moving back in with her mother Betty, she met a young man and became pregnant. There was great concern over whether the woman who had murdered two kids should be able to become a murder mother herself. Yet she fought for the right to keep her child, which was born in 1984. So she did win the right to keep her child her claims now it goes at saying she had a new identity as well when she was released so we'll get to that in a minute but Mary claimed to have a new awareness of her crimes from the birth of her her own child she was as I said allowed to keep the child who was technically a ward of the court until 1992 so they were obviously keeping an eye on her as well Um, she eventually met another man and fell in love and then they settled in a small town Um, but the probation officer had to inform the local authorities of her presence and soon the villagers were marching through the street with the murderer out signs she lived in constant fear of being exposed again she moved to another seaside town and in the late 90s so this was after she wrote the she wrote the book in conjunction with the ghostwriter um now what happened then was was the fact that the book i suppose was out probably, I guess, drew more immediate attention to the case. So she obviously was operating under a pseudonym and all the rest. But because right. she had written this book, it was, I suppose, it was maybe Brought dredging up Kelly the past. type stuff, was it? Well, no, I mean, it was, you know, it was called Cries Unheard. And it was written, as I said, in conjunction with Gita Sereni. And, you know, the, it was from her perspective. But what people really took issue with, especially the families of, like you say, the, like the, the Howes and the, the Browns, like especially those families, they really took issue with the fact that Mary oh, no, was profiting. Brown, yeah. 
Well, she they really took issue with the fact that Mary was profiting from her crimes. So at the time, Jack Straw, uh, who would have been in government at the time, he claimed, so th- they essentially found out where Mary was living and then they had to move from that town as well. But the way they found out, it was an interesting loophole because the, so the privacy laws in terms of protecting her identity were only applicable to England and Wales. So a Scottish tabloid was the one who published where she was living and then she got rooted out from that that town as well. But Jack Straw was quick to say, well, if she hadn't written the book and looked to profit from her crimes, she probably could have lived, you know, without anyone knowing who she really was. And at that stage, her daughter was 14. It was 1998. And it was only then that the daughter found out about Mary's past because all these journalists were in the garden. People were there with the placards and she had to tell the daughter, look, this is what I did when I was a little girl. So it was it was quite a dramatic time, I suppose, in Mary's life. And Belle's daughter's anonymity was originally protected only until she reached the age of 18. However, on the 21st of May 2003, Mary won a high court order uh, to have her own anonymity and that of her daughter extended for life. Any court order permanently protecting the identity of someone is consequently known as a Mary Bell order, which is something that would have been referenced with the Jamie Bulger case. The fact that these the kids who had killed this little boy, they would have fallen under that bracket of a Mary Bell order. So they were given false identities for life. And obviously a lot of people had issue with that. But it is referred to as a Mary Bell order. And in 2009, it was reported that Mary Bell had become a grandmother. um, And she is living, by all accounts, a very quiet uh, life under her new identity and all the rest. There's very little known about her since say for the last two decades. There's, you know, there there hasn't been much in the media, etc. She's been keeping keeping it. Keeping a low profile. And that is the story of child killer Mary Bell. Yeah, it's a really disturbing story. Mike, before we wrap it up, can, just remind us again, you, Mike Rice, so wonderful. It's my, is it Mike Rice on Instagram? Mike uh, Rice? It is at Mike Rice uh, Comedy on Instagram. The Mike Rice Show uh, is my podcast. And uh, there is, I mean, the use of language. If you thought the use of language here was um, <laughs> expansive, rich it's and very erudite. It really, taster. really is. Yeah. Well, look, stay safe out there, please, because we're very fond of you, Mike. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. No problem, Julia. Chat soon. Fine. Uh, bye, yeah. Mike. Talk Julie. to you soon. Bye. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Even on a budget. Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.